I didn't uh, tell you guys a small victory that I had um, yesterday. I uh, was reminded of it again at supper, and uh, Monday I went to the uh, climbing wall with my daughter and did not make it all the way up, and my daughter did. So I said, man, I can't let that stand. Um, so on Wednesday, I took a day off for rest, you know, recoup, get my mind in a good spot. Um, and so Wednesday I went back and tried what I was promised was the easiest part of the wall. And so I waited my turn and um, the person in front of me also made it to the top. And uh, that was a third grade girl. <laughs> so then I followed her and uh, also made it at the top. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I, you know, my wife, I love her. She's so supportive. I said, you know, she said, hey, you, you know, you made it to the top. I said, well, I mean, you know, a third grade girl did too. Um, and she said, yeah, but you did it faster. <laughs> yes, I'm faster than a third grade girl. <laughs> that is not the compliment she thought it was, actually. Um, actually, I was very impressed with this third grader because she, she did not give up. I mean, the definition of stick to was her. She just kept working, 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 and she finally got to the top. It was actually very impressive. So, um, but yeah, that was my little, my little victory yesterday. I, I was talking to someone um, this morning, or maybe this afternoon, out at the beachfront, um, Mark, who is probably here tonight, and he uh, was telling me his history, that he came here when he was 12 years old and um, to camp and got saved. And uh, he has come to family camp 30 years with his family and his kids and now grandkids are here. And I, I, just, I just was thinking about that. I know there's lots of stories. I've talked to several of you who, hey, this is the week we come and we've done this for years. And it's just, just interesting to me. You know, when you walk this trail, you see some of these little, little uh, signs, little spots they have. Where you can read about the history of Clear Lake or the ecology. And one of them is the history of the camp here. And it has that picture of like 10 pastors from the 50s probably, all in white shirts and ties, because that's what you wore if you're a pastor, even if you were at camp, that's what you wore. Um, certainly not a Hawaiian shirt, that was not gonna happen. Um, and I, I, I just think that those guys could not have imagined the impact that this camp has had over the years. I mean, lives changed, families um, completely different because of what God has done here. What a blessing, huh? And you guys, and me and my wife, this week get to reap um, just the, the blessings of what God has done. That is just so encouraging to me. I just think those stories are just so, I, I talked to several of you here um, over the week. Um, I just remembered Mark's from this morning, but I just, several of you who said, hey, this is what God did in my life. This is, this is where we've been coming and we've seen this. And it's just, that's just such a blessing. It's such a blessing. I know next week is senior high camp, I believe. And so, a lot of prayer for that. There'll be, there'll be kids who are coming here who um, don't know Christ and will have a chance to hear the gospel and be saved. And it could be that that starts them on a 30-year journey of coming to family camp even. So it's just such a, such a blessing. Very, very uh, happy to be a part of it this week. Have you ever heard a story that changed you? I think we're people who are moved by stories. Um, statistics 
not quite as moving to us. Sometimes they are, they're significant, but, but I think stories sometimes are, are much more likely to move us. Um, December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refuses to move to the back of the bus. And it's hard for us to imagine this was ever a thing, but it was. Black people could sit up front as long as no white passengers got on the bus. But when they did, black people were supposed to move to the back. And Rosa Parks refused one day in Montgomery, Alabama, and was arrested. I had a conversation with a man one time who grew up in that time period. He was a Christian and said that he never once thought about how wrong that was. It never occurred to him while growing up in the South that that, that isn't right. And Rosa Parks' courage led to the Montgomery bus boycott by African Americans, which lasted 381 days. And that was one of the sparks of the civil rights movement. And one story told nationwide changed people. A story can change people. Have you ever heard of Lance Sijon? He was the first Air Force Academy grad to earn the Medal of Honor. He was on his 52nd combat flight um, during the Vietnam War when he was tasked with a, a bombing mission in Laos. And due to an ordnance malfunction, his plane was engulfed in a ball, a ball of fire. So Saijon managed to eject from the aircraft and likely rendered unconscious in the ejection, his parachute landed him on a ridge adjacent to the target. So he had a violent ejection and a very rough parachute landing on the ridge. He suffered a fractured skull, a mangled right hand, a compound fracture of his left leg. He was without food, with very little water, and he had lost his survival kit, no survival kit. Nevertheless, he evaded enemy forces for 46 days. And during that entire period, Saijan was only able to move by sliding on his bottom and back along the rocky limestone ridge. He couldn't walk. After managing to move several thousand feet, he crawled onto a truck road along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, where he was finally captured by the North Vietnamese on Christmas Day in 1967. Very emaciated and in poor health, he was imprisoned in an NVA camp. Soon thereafter, he managed to incapacitate a guard, I don't even know how he did that, and escape into the jungle. He was recaptured again several hours later. So he's in terrific pain from his severe wounds and brutal beatings and torture from his captors. And the whole time, Saijan did not disclose any information other than what the Geneva Convention guidelines allowed. Suffering terribly from exhaustion, malnutrition, and disease, he was soon transported to Hanoi. However, in his weakened state, he contracted pneumonia and died in what they called the Hanoi Hilton. You've heard of that. It's where John McCain was kept as well on January 22nd, 1968. Now, the Air Force Academy honors his story all the time. They've named one of the two dorms they have there after Saijon, Lance Saijon, Saijon Dorm. Each USAFA cadet is taught his history as the first graduate to earn the Medal of Honor. Why? Because that is the kind of airmen they want to create. They believe that hearing his story will change their 4,000 cadets. Some true stories can do that. They can change us, even if it's only temporarily. But there's only one story that changes us over and over and over again. You probably guess which story that is. It's the gospel. In our passage tonight, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This story changes us. The gospel sanctifies us. It saves us, yes, but it also sanctifies us. So why should a Christian love the gospel? What does the gospel do for a Christian? And in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, Paul gives us at least three reasons why the gospel is truly good news. We're gonna look briefly at the first two and then focus on the last one for our purposes this week. So 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18 is actually Paul's exposition of Exodus 34, 33 through 35. So Paul is expounding on an Old Testament passage. And the context there in Exodus is that Moses has come off the mountain after speaking with God for 40 days and received the two tablets written by the very finger of God. This, of course, is the second time that Moses has gotten these tablets. He broke the first two in anger after the golden calf in. So remember that? That's Exodus 32. So while Moses is on the mountain, Aaron, at the time, led people to start worshiping a golden calf rather than the true God. They have proven themselves to be a sinful bunch over and over again. So now Moses comes down with a second set of tablets. And Moses did not realize that his face shone with the reflected glory of God. Physically, looking at God's glory changed Moses' face. So when Aaron and Israel see Moses' face, they're afraid of him. Why? He's got a glowing face, so what? Why be afraid of him? Well, the traditional answer is that even the reflected glory of God is an awesome sight, and that is true. But I don't think it actually fully explains their terror. There's another incident in the Old Testament where someone saw God's glory. Do you remember that one? I'm thinking of Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, which records this important incident. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What happened when Isaiah saw God's glory? Man, he immediately saw his sin. What happened when the children of Israel saw the reflected glory of God in Moses' face? I think they saw their sin. And further, they didn't want to see their sin. So they had Moses veil his face. Exodus 34, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So what this passage is describing is this. Moses would remove the veil from his face to talk to the Lord, And when done talking to the Lord, he'd speak to the people with his unveiled face. And after speaking, he'd replace the veil until he spoke with the Lord again. So three things show up in in 2 Corinthians 3 that don't show up in the Exodus account. First of all, we find that the Israelites could not stare at Moses' face. That's not something that shows up in the Old Testament. We find it from Paul. We found also that Moses' face diminished in glory, that, that it would fade. 
And then finally, we find the reasons that Moses veiled his face. That uh, told us in 2 Corinthians 3, 13 through 14. So now that we understand the passage in Exodus, we can figure out why Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul is using this incident when Moses veiled his face as representative of the law or the old covenant and comparing it with the gospel. And what we find is that the gospel truly is good news. So why is the gospel good news? Now remember, we're gonna spend a little bit of time on the first two and then we're gonna concentrate on the third one. So why is the gospel good news? First, because the gospel gives us hope and courage. The gospel gives us hope and courage. The law by itself led to discouragement and fear. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So Paul says we have this hope in verse 12. What hope? Hope in the gospel. It surpasses the old covenant because it is permanent, verse 11 told us. It's not going to change. And it gives us boldness. Boldness to give the gospel because it is a permanent message. What did the law do for us? It showed us that we were sinners. It taught Old Testament saints that sin must be paid for, that that sin involves guilt and separation, that God's wrath must be satisfied. It taught us the necessity of a blood sacrifice. It taught us the principle of substitution, the innocent for the guilty. But the law never gave hope. The law led to discouragement and fear. There's a reason the law was not called good news. The gospel's called good news. The law was not called good news. The law's benefit was that it led us to Christ. Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But that, that wasn't actually clear in the law. They had a veil over their hearts. They couldn't see Christ. The gospel is better. It gives us a permanent solution to our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus cannot be improved upon. It is the perfect and permanent solution. The gospel is good news. It gives us hope and courage. That's what he tells us here. Why is the gospel good news? Secondly, because the gospel opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. The law by itself could not soften hard hearts. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So he's obviously talking about uh, Jewish people who read the law of Moses and they don't see Jesus. They don't see him as the perfect sacrifice. They don't see it. The law by itself could not soften hard hearts. The veil is unlifted on those that have not trusted Christ. The law showed them their sinfulness. It also provided an external standard to keep, but because their minds were hardened, they believed that they could keep it and that by keeping it, they would have their own righteousness. They're wrong. The law never softened one heart. Jesus talked about this during his earthly ministry too. Mark 3, 5, it says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Or in John 9, 40 through 41, you know John 9, the incident with the blind man who gets the best of the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? 
And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What does Jesus say? He says, this blind man I healed, he's not the blind man. You guys are the blind man. They had hardened hearts. They knew the law inside and out, and it didn't soften their hearts. Every unsaved heart is hardened to the truth. It is a work of God's grace that softens our hearts. And the problem is the heart, not the law. It's not some deficiency in the law that prevents us from seeing the beauty of Jesus. It's the hardness of our minds, of our hearts. The law showed us our need of a savior, but our hearts blinded us to that truth. Moses' literal veil to prevent Israel from seeing the glory of God in his face is like a metaphorical veil on their hearts that prevents them from seeing the glory of the gospel. It prevents the unsaved from seeing the beauty of Jesus. And the veil is removed when one turns to Christ. Then you understand the the purpose and meaning of the law. Why do some of your relatives and mine not trust Christ? Their minds are hardened to the truth. That's the natural state of humans. God has to do a work in us so that we can appreciate and trust the gospel so that we can clearly see the beauty of Jesus. And the gospel opens our eyes so that we can see the beauty of Jesus. So why is the gospel good news? Well, it gives us hope and courage. It opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And most importantly for us today and and this week, because the gospel progressively transforms us into Christ's image. That's what verses 17 and 18 say. You see, the law by itself could not change you. Looking at Christ does. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All people saw by looking at the law was their sinfulness and God's righteousness. It was discouraging. I mean, it never changed anyone. Paul told us that the old covenant was abolished in Christ, which is good, because in the old covenant, there was nothing that enabled obedience. And the gospel is good news because it progressively transforms us into Christ's image. We are made a new creation instantly when we trust Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And too many Christians stop there. Too many Christians believe that that's all the gospel does, but it's not. I grew up in a church that talked about the gospel all the time, and I am thankful for that. They wanted every friend, relative, neighbor, coworker to come to Christ. I heard the gospel early and often. It was wonderful, but it was also a truncated view of the gospel. The good news was only for the lost. It was only for unbelievers. There, there was no encouragement to serious reflection on the gospel after you were saved. It was just a plan of salvation or a Roman's road that you memorized only for the purpose of telling unbelievers about Jesus. But that's not all the gospel is. It's not just for unbelievers. 3.18 says that sanctification comes from reflecting upon Christ in the gospel. The gospel is good for salvation, but it is also good for sanctification, and too many believers don't think about this. We've been talking about authentic change or spiritual growth this entire week. We learned about putting off and putting on and thinking differently, and this passage gives us another perspective on sanctification, another way to grow. 
Why can you change? And how do you change? So what do we learn about sanctification from verses 17 and 18? We see, first of all, the focus of sanctification is Christ's glory as seen in the gospel. The focus is Christ's glory as seen in the gospel. And that's in the phrase, beholding the glory of the Lord. We see the glory of Jesus. Other translations say we see it as if we're looking at a mirror. What is the mirror? Obviously, Paul is referring to Moses' face as the mirror of God's glory in Exodus 34. So Israel looks at Moses' face and they see the reflected glory from God. So God's glory to Moses' face to them. It's, it's Moses' face is a mirror to them of God's glory. They're not seeing God's glory directly, but through the mirror of, of Moses' face. So what's the mirror in verse 18? I used to believe that the primary interpretation was the mirror was God's word, and it makes sense. We, we learn about Jesus through the word of God. I still believe that the mirror of God's word is a good metaphor and also generally true. You're not incorrect for believing so. I just don't think it's the specific idea that Paul has here, though. I believe the mirror is the gospel, that we see Jesus' glory in the gospel, and it changes us. Now, obviously, we, we learn about the gospel from the Bible. We wouldn't know it otherwise, which is why I say it's generally true that the mirror is God's word, but Paul is specifically pointing us to the glory of Jesus as seen in the gospel. And if we read further in the passage, I think that actually becomes clear. If you get to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6, you read this, and even if our gospel is veiled, so we're still using the same picture here, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So unbelievers have their eyes veiled so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. The gospel shows us the glory of Christ, which means that the gospel isn't just good for unbelievers. Obviously, it's good for them, but it's also good for you and me. As we meditate on the gospel, we see the glory of Jesus. And as we see the glory of Jesus, we're changed into his image. We're sanctified. People tend to become like what they focus on, right? We have, I, I've really enjoyed the singing this week, it's been mentioned already, but, but so many of the songs that we've sung have talked about Christ and his sacrifice for us. Why are we singing those? We're singing those because we love to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. I mean, genuine believers are moved by songs like that. We, we love that. We become like what we focus on. When I was uh, a teenager and, and uh, then young uh, adult, the best basketball player in the country was Michael Jordan. And I still think he's the best of all time. So LeBron lovers, you're wrong, okay? <laughs> Everyone in my generation knows that. Um, and and, and we, were, we were thrilled with his game. He changed the NBA. And honestly, personally, I'm kind of thankful that he brought long shorts back to the NBA. I mean, those short ones in the 70s were terrible. Um, many of us tried to imitate Jordan's game. We, we watched his moves, we tried to copy him. 
And you become like what you focus on. Now, I, I did not become Michael Jordan, um, but others did have more success. He was making moves on the court that most of us had never thought of. Some guys uh, went so far as to play with their tongue out, just like Jordan did at times. You remember that, he, he would have his tongue out. Maybe a more current example is Steph Curry. He's a three-point shooting wizard, and because of his influence, the three-pointer has become much more a part of basketball, even down to the high school level. I mean, high schoolers are pulling up the logo and shooting the threes. Every player wants to be like him. Focusing on him has changed how people play the game. And you become like who you study. In this passage, the focus of our sanctification is the glory of Jesus as shown in the gospel. Do you want to grow? Then look at the gospel. Love its beauty. It will change you. It will sanctify you. How does it change us? Maybe, maybe that's where we need help. You're like, okay, I, I get it. I, I mean, I appreciate singing those songs too. I, I love thinking about the gospel, but, but Craig, how does that actually change us? Well, there's, there's a few ways that we can think of right off the bat. The gospel humbles us. You cannot be thrilled with yourself and also recognize that it took the death of God to save you. You're horrible, and so am I. And the gospel reminds me and humbles me. Everything you have is because of God's grace. Everything. So the gospel humbles us. The gospel grows our dependence upon God. You needed Jesus to save you. You could not save yourself. And if you needed Jesus to start your spiritual life, don't you also need him to continue it? Why do we think that we needed Jesus to save us, but then we're on our own? that I can live all by myself. I don't need him anymore. The gospel reminds us of our dependence upon Christ. The gospel leads us to praise God. As we examine his wonderful plan for the redemption of the lost, we are astounded at God's wisdom. I mean, Ephesians says he chose us before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glory. Do you want to get better at praising God? Then study the gospel. The gospel quiets our anxiety. Man, that's, that's crazy on the rise, isn't it? I mean, anxiety is just out of control in, in so many lives. Um, it's, it's especially an epidemic among teenagers and young adults. The gospel can quiet our anxiety. If God took care of your greatest need, estrangement from God through sin, won't he also take care of your lesser needs? If he did the greater, can't he do the lesser? In the gospel, thinking about the gospel draws us closer to God. Tim Keller asked this question, I think it's really good. When something happens that reveals your sins more clearly than you have ever wanted to see or admit, does it move you away from God or closer to him? If it makes you want to stay away from God and prayer and church, that shows you don't understand what Jesus did for you. If you understand the cross, then discovery of new depths of weakness, fault, and evil in your life drives you closer to him and not further away. See, understanding the gospel makes you look at your sin differently. You say, man, Jesus, I know you loved me, but I just found out I'm a bigger sinner than I thought I was, which means you actually love me more than I thought you did. It drives you closer to him. The focus of sanctification is Christ's glory as seen in the gospel. 
What's the goal of sanctification? That's next. The goal of sanctification is becoming like Christ. He says here we are being transformed into the same image. So where does sanctification take us? What's the end result? What do we become? We're transformed into the same image. It's the word metamorphosis. We're changed to become like Christ. And the goal is actually not for you to become a nicer person. Except as that is like Christ, that means it's not our world's definition of niceness. You know, the the world's definition of niceness is never saying anything to anyone that contradicts or confronts them. But is that Jesus' definition of niceness? I mean, he seemed to say some things that were hard for people to hear. He spoke the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, as the Apostle Paul phrased it. So being transformed into his image means saying some hard things in a kind way And that means that some people are not going to like you. And that is challenging for those of us people pleasers to become like Christ. The goal is not for you to develop a better personality. It's for you to become like Christ. Jesus is the standard. The goal is not for you to have an easy and trouble-free life. We sometimes get confused on that. We, we think God owes us the life that we've dreamed of. Some people, unfortunately, even sell the gospel that way. Hey, come to Jesus and all your dreams will come true. No, they won't. You have the wrong dreams. They can't come true. He wants to make you like Christ. And God is willing to sacrifice any temporary joy or pleasure so that you are changed. So the goal of sanctification is not for your family to love you more or for you to have fewer arguments at the office or for you to be less paralyzed by worry. It's actually for you to become like Christ. Then there's the process of sanctification. Gradually increasing glory. Don't you love this phrase here? From one degree of glory to another. Wouldn't it be awesome if spiritual change were immediate? Man, if you could hear one sermon and get convicted of your worry, and boom, never worry again. That, that would be amazing. It'd be cool if maybe we could you know, snap our fingers like Thanos when he had the infinity stones, and you know, boom, we no longer struggle with worry at all, or boom, we never say an unkind word again. That would be awesome. Unfortunately, that's just the stuff of movies. Sanctification does not happen by snapping our fingers. So what does sanctification look like? Is it instant? No, it's progressive. It's hard and slow, but it does happen. Sanctification is a process, not an event. The decisions you make this week are the start of the process. I'm thankful for you if you've made decisions this week, um, when when Brian's been speaking or I've been speaking, that, that the Spirit has worked in your life. What a blessing. And Tim on Sunday night, what a blessing. Thank God for that. But that's the start of change. Metamorphosis is a, is a particular construction in the Greek that indicates sanctification is continuous, that, that it's always happening, that it's happening today, but it was also happening last night when your kids used all the hot water before you took a shower. It's always happening. From glory to glory means degree by degree, slowly, It refers to progressive sanctification, that we're sanctified, I made up a new word, we're sanctified bit by bit. You and I want instant change. There's very little appreciation in our day for building something slowly. We want instant victory over sin, 
It's microwave popcorn Christianity. Just give it to me now. And God can do that. But that is not the normal process of sanctification. The normal process is the hard slog. It is difficult and slow. It is from glory to glory. You see, you and I don't actually want to depend upon Christ to change us. We just want it now so we can go back to living for our plans and goals. That's not God's way. Slow change makes us dependent upon Christ that we over and over and over and over and over again, day after day after day, realize we need him. We are a mess. We need him. But over time, we do see change. Have you seen Jesus change over the past year? I mean, you should. You should see tangible ways that you are more like Christ than you were in the summer of 2022. It is slow, but it is also real. Change does happen. So be encouraged. You're not unusual if change is slow for you. That's the normal Christian experience. It's what Paul describes right here. And this process leads to ever-increasing glory, that we become more and more like Christ as opposed to the fading glory of Moses' face. The process of sanctification is gradually increasing glory, slowly, step by step, bit by bit, degree by degree, we become more like Christ. He tells us here the agent of sanctification. The agent of sanctification is the Holy Spirit. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this is important. You're not the agent of sanctification. You don't change yourself. This holy process is designed so that God always gets the glory. It's designed so that you're dependent upon God. One of the particular ministries of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to please God, that he works in specific ways now that we have the gospel, that, that he gives liberty. The Old Testament law led to bondage, but the Spirit gives freedom. We're told that he gives us freedom from bondage to the law. The law was an anchor that always showed our failure. We're told that he gives us freedom from slavery to sin, that, that you and I don't have to choose sin anymore, we can choose righteousness. And he gives us freedom from the old nature. So the Holy Spirit, sanctifies us as we gaze at the glory of Jesus. You don't change yourself, you never have. It has always been the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this reminds us of our dependence upon God. It's a spiritual truism that you must put effort and work into your sanctification, but it's also true that you cannot change yourself. The Spirit changes you as you work. It's something that we sometimes call dependent responsibility. We see it in, in other passages like Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not talking about working for salvation, talking about you've been saved, so it should work out into your life. It should, it should, there should be tangible fruit that we see. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it? Do I do it or does God do it? And it's both, is what he's telling us here. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What, what is this idea of, of will, both to will and to work? What does that mean? That means that you and I are so messed up that we wouldn't even choose to do right. We wouldn't want to do right if God didn't change us. He's the one who gives us the will to do it. We have passages like 2 Peter 1, 3 through 7. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness or all things that pertain to godly living through the knowledge of him. So he's given us everything we need for godly living 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So which is it? God has given us all we need for godly living, or I'm supposed to put every effort into it? And it's both. It's both. And I think even most clearly in 1 Corinthians 15.10 when Paul says this, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He's got a grace sandwich there. It's the grace of God, what I am, but I worked hard, but then it was actually God's grace. That's how we think about that. Paul referred to the veil again at the beginning of verse 18. Remember, Moses' face was transformed as he saw God's glory, and the Christian's life is transformed as he sees Christ's glory. The transformation of Moses' face eventually faded away, but your sanctification grows and grows. You become more and more like Christ. It doesn't have to fade away. The gospel sanctifies you. So what's the next step for us? What difference does this good news make in your life? I would encourage you to review the gospel pretty much every day. It's not just for salvation, then you forget it. You need to preach the gospel to yourself daily. I'm not the first person to say that. Other people have said that. So, so do this with your first thoughts in the morning. Remind yourself the glories of the gospel and you'll be changed. One resource that can help you, you have these in your, in your notes there, A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. It's not a long book. It's actually a really thin book but it'll give you some beauty in the gospel to think about each day. It's just a short reading. Another resource is the many devotionals written by Chris Anderson. He's the lyricist who wrote His Robes for Mine and his team at Church Works Media. You've probably seen some of these. They're 30-day devotionals with titles like Gospel Meditations for Young Adults or for Fathers or Gospel Meditations for Mothers or Gospel Meditations for Christmas or they have all sorts of them like that. Buy some of those and go through those. It's Again, it's a page a day always on the gospel, another, another facet of the beauty of the gospel. Read about the gospel. Take a tract or pamphlet that you would give to an unbeliever and read it yourself. Read some of the, uh, the, the recent books that extol the glories of the gospel. And as you do, you will be changed. That, that's what he tells us in this passage. Are you struggling with sin? Do you want to grow? Along with working hard to put off sin and put on righteousness, Spend some time meditating on Jesus' glory as found in the gospel. Verse 18 promises that seeing Christ's glory in the gospel will change you. The gospel, it's a story that changes us. It saves us, but it also sanctifies us. So spend some time meditating on the gospel and see your life progressively become like Christ. Don't make the mistake that some Christians do, that my church did growing up where the gospel was just something for unbelievers. It was just some words that they were supposed to say and believe and pray, and that's all it was. No, the gospel is beautiful. And, and it shows us the glory of Christ. We just sang about it tonight. That sanctifies us. You wanna grow? Wanna become more like Christ? Study the gospel. Meditate on the gospel and Christ will change you. Amen. Let's pray.
God, we are so thankful for the good news that, Lord, sinners can be reconciled with the holy God. There's no way we would, if we actually contemplated, there's no way we could think that's even possible. There's nothing we can bring to you. We have nothing. Everything we do is tainted by sin. We only get in further debt if we try to do it in our own efforts. And yet, God, you provided a way through Christ. Perfect man, perfect God. He did not have to die for his own sins, so he could die for mine. And God, you've saved those who repent and believe. I'm one of those, and I'm thankful for that. So are so many people here. And yet, God, the gospel isn't just good news to bring us into relationship with you. It's also good news that helps sanctify us. So, Lord, may we be people who love the gospel, who think about it a lot, who sing it a lot, so that we can grow and become like Christ. That'll be your grace to us through your spirit. Amen.